this this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time that you've given to us. Lord, we have, um, Lord, set it aside for you. Those who are here, perhaps those who are watching online, Lord, this is a moment, and this just is, is just a, a moment in the day that we have set aside. Hopefully we did it this morning, but in our own devotional time. But now it's a time of instruction, a time of study, a time of getting into your word together corporately as your children, as your people. And, uh, and so we ask, Father, that you would, Lord, that you would give us understanding, but you would, that you would um, put us at, at ease, Lord, with everything perhaps that we've experienced today. Sometimes we, we're, we're still uh, running inside, and I pray, Father, that you would just, uh, just help us to slow down, to take some deep breaths spiritually, and to receive from you what you would have to speak to your church. So we commit this time into your hands, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever felt like you're surrounded by your enemies? Have you ever felt like that? Like all things are about to descend upon you and there's just absolutely no way out? I think everyone at uh, certain points in their lives experienced that. You feel that way. You feel overwhelmed, like you're just backed up into a corner. Like all your enemies have descended upon you, and there's no way out. The question is, as you reflect on that, let me ask you this, because this is very important for us. As Mandy said, we're, uh, we're supposed to be odd people, odd in the eyes of the world. Actually, we're peculiar people. And we shouldn't respond to things in our lives the same way in which the world does. So the question for you as you think about that, as perhaps you have felt overwhelmed, had enemies on every side and there's no way out, how did you respond? How have you responded? What or who have you trusted in to provide victory or a way of escape? You see, Psalm 28, 7 says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. There are many lessons to learn in life, but this one of trusting in the Lord in any and all circumstances is a critical one. It will help you have peace when everyone else is frantic, anxious, worried, and overwhelmed. As you trust in the Lord, it will help you seek his wisdom and will provide the discernment to act in a way that gives glory to God according to his word, which is his will. Trusting in the Lord to help you through seemingly overwhelming odds against you will bring you to a place of seeing things clearly and knowing that with God, truly, all things are possible. Tonight, we learn about a time when the Ammonites and the Syrians came up against Israel. They surrounded them on every side. And yet, they were defeated by God. We need to understand how it was done. We'll learn and see for ourselves at this very moment as we start going through this chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 10. 
2 Samuel chapter 10. Verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Naash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. Let's pause for a moment there. This is an introduction to this chapter. And it, it came um, right after the whole uh, scene with Mephibosheth and the mercy and the kindness that David had shown to him. Now, as we consider King Naish and this whole situation, now he had just died. And if you search through scripture, it's kind of difficult to find where it was that King Naish had actually shown kindness to David. And and yet there's one portion that uh, points us um, to that very act that King Naish had demonstrated to David at one point. Most commentators suggest that Naish had most likely offered David some assistance and security during the time of his flight from Saul. You know, when Saul was pursuing him, and Saul was trying to get away, making sure that he evaded Saul because he sought his life. Now, according to 1 Samuel 21 and 22, the Moabites and Philistines were eager to extend their protection to David, but it wasn't because they were compassionate towards David. It was because Saul was their common enemy. Because of this, it would be reasonable to think that the Ammonites did the same thing, that perhaps King Naish did this very thing, just as David said he did. In 2 Samuel chapter 17, verses 27 through 29, it says, When David came to Manaim, Shobai, the son of Naish, from Rabah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Emile, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, and, Barzillai, and, and the, uh, the Gileadite, from Rogelim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him for David and the people with him to eat for they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness so it is kindness as we see there in this scenario David is uh, actually fleeing Absalom not Saul and Shobai son of Naish shows up among the loyal friends of David who provide him with food and shelter from his enemies. So it's extremely likely that Shobai, son of Naish, is none other than the son of Naish, king of Ammon, of the Ammonites. And that this was the very man that was David's old acquaintance for many years prior while he was fleeing Saul. So the descriptions, as you see there, match up very well with what we know of Naish, king of Ammon, So it seems likely that Naish had offered David some protection and security while he was fleeing Saul, as Saul, again, was their common enemy. And then at this point, now David felt obligated to return this kindness 
upon King Naish, upon his family, just as, just as David had done with Mephibosheth, and, uh, which was Jonathan's son, the grandson of King Saul, so he was doing with King Naish and Hanan, his son. King Naish had just died. And you see this king, this king's heart just melt with compassion. And he had kindness toward Hanun. David knew that Hanun was grieving over the loss of his father and sent servants on his behalf to console him. David was a man of war, but he was also a man of compassion as he goes out of his way to express that he cares and was offering his deepest condolences to the family of his dear friend, King Naish, his son, specifically Hanun. So we, we see this. You know, some, one thing I, I want to pause and just kind of um, <clears throat> point out is, is here is King David. You know that King David was a, was a tough man. He was a man of battle. He was a man of war. He could hold his own. He could lead very well. He knew how to evade. But he was also a man of mercy, of kindness. He was compassionate and gentle. Those attributes can be possessed in the same person. It all depends on how we handle those things and the timing, the manner in which we do so, that matters. All of those attributes are godly attributes. We are not, as Christians, doormats. We are not ones that, you know, sometimes we go to uh, one verse and we take that and we, we run with it. You know, if they, if they strike you on one side, then uh, give, yourself, give them the other side and let them strike you. Well, you know, that pertains to specific areas in your life and timing. Time, time and occasion is everything. You need to be able to discern. We are, as Christians, to use our heads because there are other times when we are to rise up and we are to battle. We are to confront. We are to oppose. We are to advance. For Ephesians chapter 6 gives us the whole armor of God, which is the very armor of a warrior to advance for the sake of the kingdom and the glory of our God Almighty. And so we see this in King David. We see how it is that he has compassion at this very moment. And yet previously we see him go into battle time and time again and have victories as he fought for good. Verse 3, as we continue, But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David... He sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. These uh, quote-unquote princes of 
Hanun were advisors. Basically, they're advisors to the king. And they make it very clear to the successor of the throne that they didn't believe that David had good intentions in sending his men to console the king. They believed that David was lying. They believed that David had no intention of honoring King Naish and consoling Hanun. Hanun's advisors believed that David's men were there to collect information, to gather intelligence on the land and the people in order to prepare for an attack and to occupy the land. As we see Hanun's response, obviously, by his actions, he believed his advisors, taking David's men and humiliating them by shaving half of their beards and cutting half of their clothes basically off of them. He disgraced them. And in so doing, he was thumbing his nose at King David. Now, we need to understand why this is so insulting. And one of the reasons, and one of the main reasons, is that in that day, men who were free wore beards. And everyone who had clean-shaven faces were slaves. But there were other reasons. That was one of the main reasons. Not only that, but their treatment was insulting toward, specifically and directly towards King David. Think about it. These men were sent on behalf of King David, representing him, to go offer cons- consolation, uh, to, to go and offer some compassion to Hanun. And he rejected. Not only did he reject it, but he humiliated. He disgraced his very ambassadors. And for him, it was as good as doing it to him. And it was. And Hanun knew that. He knew it very well. He did it purposely. He did it deliberately. As it is with David's ambassadors, you know that we are ambassadors of Christ. We are, we are ones that are sent out. We're disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. We are ones, hopefully, who deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him daily. As we got into the world to go work, to go to the grocery store, to go wherever we're going to go, we go everywhere as his representatives, as his ambassadors. And so he warns us in John chapter 15 and in other areas of scripture, but in John chapter 15, verse 18, it says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Uh, I love how Jesus didn't sugarcoat things. 
I had mentioned on Sunday how it was that even when, when the devil had desired to sift Peter, uh, he, didn't, he didn't bring him in, he didn't cover him, he didn't protect him. What he did was he told him, hey, after, after you are restored, after you, you come back to a place that you were able to encourage, strengthen your brethren. The Lord tells us time and time again, you know, I send you out as sheep among wolves. Be as cunning as a serpent, but as harmless as a dove. Again, this, this gives us the understanding that we are to think, we are to be wise in the way we handle ourselves. But we are in a violent world. We are here and we ought to be wise and we ought to understand the things that we are confronted with. But this hatred, the same hatred that was demonstrated towards David's ambassadors is demonstrated to Jesus' ambassadors, you and I. And it matters how we handle ourselves. Well, David was told what had taken place and he met with the men he he initially, they didn't want to come to him, and then word came to David, and, and David then went to where they were, and they met, and he heard everything that happened to them, and he told them to go into Jericho and to stay there until their beards grew back, and then they would return to Jerusalem. So David, King David, showed compassion toward his men. He didn't, he didn't, uh, he didn't use them to stir up anger amongst the people. He simply, he, he told them to go into Jericho until their beards grew, grew back. And so he protected their dignity by doing so. Uh, some questions in regards to these verses and what we just covered. One of the questions that we must ask is, uh, because Hanun had these advisors, these czars, perhaps of different areas of his kingdom, of what he was ruling over, and they were his closest advisors. Were Hanun's advisors correct in their assessment of the situation? No, right? Was David really sending spies for the purpose of gathering intelligence to prepare for an attack? If Hanun's advisors were wrong, which they were, what was their purpose for giving Hanun this type of advice? What would they get out of it? We don't know the answer to these questions other than they gave him bad advice. But I thought perhaps we, can learn, we could learn something from this. You see, sometimes people give advice without fully knowing or understanding the situation or the background. They hear one side and are very quick to give advice immediately. Be careful to get all information before giving your advice. Ask a lot of questions. You could be leading someone down the wrong path if you don't, and you don't want to be responsible for doing that. You don't want to be responsible for encouraging someone to take the wrong path and to act on behalf of half information or false information. Unfortunately, at times, I've been quick to give advice without all of the necessary information 
I don't know if you have, but I have, and it's to my shame. Remember that you could be leading someone down the wrong path. And this is why I'm learning to ask for more information, ask more questions, and ask God for his wisdom and discernment. Sometimes people just want to appear very wise in order to gain a better position with a person or an organization, a group, hoping that perhaps their advice brings them success, but they are gambling when it comes with limited information. Proverbs 18.17 says, the one who states his case first seems right, right? Oh, if you hear one side, that's exactly what it is. The one who states his case first seems right. You're just like, yeah, that's it. Oh, but there's more to that verse. <laughs> Until the other one comes and examines him. Oh, you can be right in your own eyes, but you can be absolutely wrong as you are examined. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You know, as we ask each other, as we ask questions to, um, to learn of situations, of circumstances, really in the end, the bottom line is that through that, we should, we should be getting answers that line up with God, with His will, with His perspective. Because really, that's where we should be as, as Christ's followers, as God's people, as His children, shouldn't we? We should be more interested in what he has to say about our situations than we, than we desire or are interested in, in, in learning about what other people say about the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Shouldn't we? We are God's people after all, and no one else's. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1, speaking of wisdom. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you, understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Wisdom. We ought to counsel with God. We ought to seek his word and apply it to our lives. As we glorify him in doing so, I tell you time and time again, you will be encouraged, you will you'll be blessed, you will be uplifted, you will be encouraged, and you will be stirred up in that peace 
that surpasses all understanding. It will be yours as you seek him. Now let's see what happens next. Verse 6, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and Rehob and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. Now, as we see here, the Ammonites knew that they had provoked David in Israel. They, they knew, like I said, Hanan, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that he had stirred up the hornet's nest, you could say. He provoked David and Israel. And that's why immediately he hired the Syrian army to join them in drawing up in battle against the Israelites. These, uh, these you could say, soldiers of fortune. But that was quite common in that day to do this, to, to hire armies from without to help certain groups of people and nations to battle against others. Now, their strategy was implied here as assembling and striking first as soon as possible to gain the advantage, having the element of surprise on their side. David heard of the Ammonites' movements, and he immediately responded by sending his mighty men and Joab to the front lines to assemble with the rest of the army. Again, David, upon hearing that the enemy was assembling against them, immediately called everyone into action, calling on the best of the best, the elite, his mighty men, to come with Joab and assemble, making up the front lines of the army of Israel. It's very important sometimes to respond to that which we're confronted with. Among these mighty men were several who were famous for having killed hundreds of men at single moments, single events, and by themselves. One killed over 300, the other one over 500. Think about that. Amazing uh, just uh, for one man to be able to do such things. But other men were part of the mighty men of, of David. These were the elite warriors who were ready and could be called on at a moment's notice, as is the case here. You know, oftentimes we refer to the Christian as a warrior. Because it is a battle. We understand that. When things get tough, the question is, can you be counted on to step up and be called on to help at a moment's notice? Are you doing so now? If not, why? But can you be called upon? Can you be relied upon? Can you be trusted to come alongside and stand up at the moment that you are needed. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. What this means, and I love this because 
you know, uh, it's explaining loyalty. A friend is loyal at all times. And a brother will be there when help is needed. A brother is born for adversity. Um, you guys, I hope, I'm talking to a bunch of fighters here, right? I hope so. When, when something that, that God gets angered toward, does it not anger you? Does it not break your heart, whatever breaks God's heart? Are we not his people who are ready at any given moment when called upon to step in and to do that which he has called us to do? A true friend is loyal and is always ready to help at a time when it's needed. So when it's time to fight, let's fight. That's what Proverbs 17, 17 tells us. That's what David was doing. He was calling on these people to come alongside. It's time. It's time. Let's gather. Let's gather. We're assembling right now. It's time to engage the enemy. Proverbs 18, 24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I pray and I hope that you may have many friends these types of friends who rather than destroy each other are closer than a brother and remain at your side, especially in times of trouble. That is so important to have. Someone who uh, doesn't tell you what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. Someone who comes alongside and wounds you like a true friend, but doesn't kiss you profusely like an enemy. Because that's what enemies do. They tell you whatever you want to hear. They just tickle your ear. Because you, you itch. And they'll just scratch that. Well, David had assembled the army of Israel. And he'd gathered <clears throat> spec ops to go in also. The question is, did the Ammonites get the upper hand? We'll see. Verse 9. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in, in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage. And let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. It wasn't looking too good for Joab and the rest of the, the army. Uh, by all outward appearances, they were surrounded, right? They, they were like overwhelmed. They were not in a good place. They were in a very vulnerable position. It's very tough to fight and to defend from such a position. They had the Syrians out in the field behind them and the Ammonites before them at the gate. In other words, they were surrounded by their enemies and they could not maneuver and shift positions. They were pretty much stuck. Can we consider just one thing that God has done for his people? 
as they were fleeing from the Egyptians and came to a place, if you see where it was that they were, they were, they were cornered. They were surrounded by a landscape that wouldn't allow them to go anywhere. They had hills around them and the Red Sea on the other side and the Egyptian army was coming upon them. If God can part the Red Sea for the Israelites to help them escape from the Egyptian army, certainly God can give them victory in this situation. What have you been in? What kind of situation have you been in? You think anything's too hard for God? Oh, we act as if something, like we're experiencing something so unique that perhaps this is one, this is one thing that he cannot deliver us from. It matters how we respond. Do you truly believe that he is able? Do you truly understand what you've read of all the things that God has done? That God is God Almighty. He is Lord of all. He is the creator of the universe. If he's done these things time and time and time and time and time again, why can he not get you out of what you're going through or help you through it successfully? Why do we respond as if he cannot? Oh, it's to our shame. Because we have fallen once again from expressing true faith in the one we call Lord and God. He is able, because with God all things are possible. There is never a loss of hope with him. Well, Joab quickly assigned the best fighters to the Syrians, and he led that campaign, and the rest he assembled and readied to fight against the Ammonites with his brother Abishai leading that group. And Joab made sure that if either one of them was being overwhelmed that they would come to the other's aid, that they would join forces. If it was the Ammonites that were overwhelming Abishai, then, of course, Joab would turn around and he would help his brother out in that fight. But if the Syrians were overwhelming Joab and his men, then they agreed Abishai would turn around and he would assist his brother in battling against the Syrians. Either way, they were there to help each other out. You could say they were back-to-back. You know, they were fighting in two different directions, but they were back-to-back. There was nothing between them, and yet God was with them. They were fighting in two different directions, and yet God was doing the work in both areas. We need to see here Joab's encouragement because it is absolutely beautiful to his brother in this moment of impending battle. Verse 12 once more says, Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Short, sweet, and to the point. And yet in that one word of encouragement, he said so much. Let's notice what isn't there. 
Notice that Joab did not ask Abishai. Hey, bro, how you feeling? You feeling okay? You, you all right with all of this? Of course I'm not. All right? I mean, of course anyone in his right mind would be in this place and just would be like, I am like, oh, man, I mean, just the thoughts that are going through my mind, I'm trying to focus on the battle before me. I'm going to assemble my men and do the best I can, making sure that everything's in place. He didn't ask him that. He didn't ask him, hey, how you feeling, bro? Because he was feeling the same thing Joab was feeling. He knew. But if feelings were going to lead them, then they were already defeated and worthless in battle. If you allow your feelings to overwhelm the word of God and the will of God, you're already defeated. When your feelings paralyze you from doing the right thing, you are defeated. When your feelings bring you to a place of anxiety, you're already defeated. When your feelings bring you to a place of worrying, being overwhelmed, you're already defeated. Acknowledge where you are. Surrender that to the Lord. And then ask him, Ask him, not my will be done, but yours. What is it? What do you want? I'm willing. Send me. He did say, be of good courage. Be of good courage. And you see, this, in spite of everything that was going on, has everything to do with a person's free will. In a moment when a person is feeling fearful and anxious, it's a personal choice to either remain paralyzed by fear and anxiety or act with courage and God's strength. I can't. You're right. You can't. When you realize that you can and all things are possible with God, then you start saying, you start speaking, you start doing. You say, yes, I can. In spite of myself, I am going to do this very thing. You can either remain paralyzed by fear and anxiety or act with courage and strength, God's strength. You can act contrary to your feelings. And right now, there's a lot of fear going around. We need, God's people need to stop. We're, we're building up these things in our, in our minds, in our imagination, that aren't even real in so many different ways. As God's people, we got to stop. Because perfect love casts out all was it fear? I thought so. It's the understanding of love, that perfect love, that perfect love that God has demonstrated to us. To live as Christ and to die as gain. Let us behave in that way. You can act contrary to your feelings. 
That's what courage is. It's not the absence of fear, but rather acting despite your fear. You think that our soldiers go out to battle? Our airmen, our sailors go out there? Like, man, they must be fearless. No, they're not. I can tell you firsthand. No, they're not. But they act despite their feelings, what their emotions are telling them. They go back on what they know. What do you know about the Lord? They, they, they take that knowledge and they start applying it. Here we go. Let's go. We understand God's promises. We walk in his word according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Here we go. We're going to engage right now. And God will know victory time and time and time again in that person. That's what courage is. Joab also pointed out what was at stake. I love this. Just in this short statement, this short word of encouragement, they were to be strong and courageous for the sake of the people in the cities. If they didn't act and win the battle, then it would impact the rest of the people. Everyone. We don't realize how many people we impact by non-action or by the wrong action. We have no idea. We should. And this is what Joab was telling Abishai. This is what's before us. People ought to consider the impact of non-action on behalf of God's people in line with God's word against the enemies of God. It's very specific. It's against the enemies of God. James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. God, you see, doesn't tell us to be passive against the enemy, but rather to resist him. 1 Peter 5.9 says, Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him. It's an action that someone takes. Resist him. And lastly, Joab does one very important thing. When all is said and done, in this little, in this short word of encouragement, Joab yields to the Lord. No matter what. Basically says at the very end, may the Lord's will be done. He is sovereign no matter what it is that happens. We yield to his will, whatever it is. Whatever seems good to him, so be it. So they all assembled. They all lined up. They were ready for battle. And in that preparation, and the most important thing is that they were given to the Lord, trusting to him with great confidence in him. Verse 13 so Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. One verse, of Deuteronomy chapter 28, and verse 7. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. God's word to his people. Well, what did Joab do? 
What did Abishai do? So can you imagine David's asking King David, so, okay, Joab, what happened? Abishai, what happened? We drew near. Yeah, and then? No, we, we, we drew near. Yes, but you must have, like, engaged. We, I guess you could say we engaged. We, we stood up. We advanced, and they all fled. They, they, all, they scattered. In other words, Joab and the mighty men and Abishai and his men did one thing in faith, stood up to the enemy, and the Lord caused them to flee. When the Ammonites saw what the Syrians did, they did likewise and ran. Joab was done. He goes back to Jerusalem. To me, I don't know about you, but this is kind of a funny and odd situation. It, it, it's, not, it's not the norm, is it? it? It's not something that happens all the time, does it? But here's what happened. Faith. It wasn't passive or lazy faith, but it was an act of faith that was displayed by Joab and the army of Israel. James 2.26 says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Have you ever heard someone say, or perhaps you've said it yourself? The question is why. Let's pray and see what God does. When you know very well that you are to take action. Have you ever said that? Unfortunately, I have. I have. Maybe it's because I wanted to avoid doing something, confronting something out of fear. Maybe we hope that in waiting it will be forgotten. Or maybe it'll just somehow go away and we can say, God took care of it. That's often not the case. Have, have you noticed that? You see, certain things just don't go away. They're kind of just swept under the rug. Or the pulpit, if you think about that. That's not the way to do it. The enemy and the things of the enemy don't just go away. You see, the enemy is relentless, and unless we stand up, and do what is right and face the enemy and his schemes. He is given, listen to what you're doing, to what we're doing. We are giving him free reign to do as he wishes with our lives and those around us. We do nothing. If we don't act in faith, then we are giving him free reign to do whatever it is that he wants to do. But as we move forward with the confidence of the Lord, knowing that all things are possible with him, that his promises are true, we soon realize that all we had to do is stand up and advance just a little bit, and God starts doing this work, and we see the enemy start fleeing from before us in ways that we could have never imagined. 
Oh, we see that. I see that time and time again. I am encouraged to, therefore, get back up and keep going and confront one more time. Confront one more time. Keep advancing. Keep going. Keep engaging and confronting the enemy in, in that way. This is why the Lord tells us to act in obedience to his word. In so doing, we are opposing darkness and the destruction, division, and death that the enemy wishes to inflict upon us, whether it's within the church, individually, in your marriage, and with relationships in so many different areas. The moment you sense the enemy rear its ugly head in any of those places in your life, stand up, oppose, and as you draw upon him with God's word and with God's wisdom, things begin to happen that are glorifying to the Lord. And you begin to see just how faithful the Lord is to fulfilling his word in your life. You will at least have peace in your own life, knowing that you're standing up righteously before the Lord in his righteousness, but you're doing so in a right manner. We need to be courageous to confront the enemy. Remember 1 Peter 5.9, resist him, firm in your faith. James 4.7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's what God's word tells us. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What did Jesus do when he was tempted by Satan? Oh, when Satan kept trying to take the word out of context and apply it to, to, to the whole situation and, and he kept tempting Jesus, he kept going back to the word and he would give it to him in context, stated correctly. Jesus was standing on the very word. So should we. That's how we resist the devil. It says here that he will, he will flee from you. Well, but the conflict wasn't over because there were Syrian reinforcements. Verse 15, as we conclude this chapter, says, But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Elam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at, the, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Elam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him, and the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. So apparently the Syrians were done with the Ammonites. There's, we don't want no more. We're done. As, as David, once more, as David heard that the Syrians had, Syrians had regrouped and were assembling, so he assembled, at this point, all of Israel. He brought, he brought them all together. And he attacked and he defeated the Syrians. He handed them a swift defeat. David did not relax. David did not take the second wave lightly. 
just because they had known victory the first time. He sent all of his army because he knew the enemy would pull all the stops to get this one last victory. And David wasn't about to let that happen. Oh, that's, that's a spiritual lesson for you and I. Sometimes we kind of like, hey, we've had some great moments. We've had some great victories in the Lord. And then, you know, something that it's like, you know what, we've had victory over that before. And we kind of just like take it lightly and we don't pay much attention to it. That's when we're in trouble. We can't do that. Every attack by the enemy needs to be taken seriously. David assembled all of his men. He said, hey, let's go take care of business. And that's how it should be with us. You know, Christianity isn't a one-man show. That's why, by the way, we're gathered here today, because we're commanded not forsake the assembling of ourselves, of God's people, and here we are, right? I don't know about you, but e even when I'm away for a short time, like we, we take vacation every now and then, and it seems, it seems odd to be away from the fellowship. I love the fellowship of the brethren. I get a lot out of the fellowship of the brethren. This is not... Uh, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a place where or God's people aren't people who are just individuals just out there. You know, I'm just doing my own thing. I, I don't really need to go to church. Have you ever heard that? Maybe you've said that. You know, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Actually, if you're actually a, a, a Christian, a Christ follower, you demonstrate your love for God by obeying him. And God's word says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. So therefore... A Christian who is loving the Lord will assemble with his people. But the moment we, we, we go out and we do start, start doing our own things and we, we isolate ourselves. Some people have a tendency to isolate. The moment you do that, it's like that coal that you put off to the side and it starts cooling down pretty soon and you can't see its, its glow anymore. It starts cooling down. It gets to the point to where the only way that that coal will light back up is to throw them back into the fellowship of the coals, you could say. Oh, I, I just, I, I love coming together because I'm encouraged. And that's what we ought to do. Everyone coming together to fight the enemy because we do not take it lightly when he comes against the church and against you individually. That's why it's important for you to come to your brothers and sisters in Christ and, and let them know, I'm facing this. Can you help me out? Can you come alongside me? Can I count on you as my loyal friend in this time of battle? Will you pray on my behalf? Oh, absolutely. That's what we need to do time and time again. We ought not take the confrontation of the enemy lightly. So David didn't, and he knew great victory once more. Don't let your guard down because the enemy is relentless. Resist him by skillfully welding the sword of the Spirit and confront him with great courage and the strength of the Lord. The sword of the Spirit is the very word of God that you have in your hands. Father, we certainly have seen your faithfulness, Lord, and are reminded again that what is impossible with man is possible with you, not only for salvation, but to day in and day out living 
as we abide in you, we see that the source of, <laughs> of that which is fruitful and glorifying to you is the very source of the power and the might that serves to know victory over our enemies. And so, Lord, I pray that we would lean into you a bit more, that we would trust in you, that we would look to you for wisdom, discerning and responding in a way that glorifies you. Let us know your faithfulness. Let us know your love and grace and respond in a fitting way. We thank you, Father, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.